0: I'm preaching this morning uh, about uh, something I'm calling true worship from Psalm 63. So let me read this text, and then we will get started. Psalm 63, this is the word of God. It is always true. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, O God, you are my God. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. One of the principal problems with modern people is that we have become human doings instead of human beings. And this pithy saying, which is not original with me, suggests that our frailty as people is to forget, in mind and in heart, the sacred order of the two great questions of the universe. First, and this should be first, who am I? And second, what am I here to do? In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is the Presbyterian Church's kind of summary of Christian teaching, this question is is set at the very head of the line. At the At the outset, this question is essentially set forth as being that most important question when the student or the one who's being catechized is asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, some of you may know the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Worshiping God, this is what I think the Westminster Divines mean by glorifying God, begins, I think, with understanding our identity, knowing who we are, knowing that we have been made in the image of God, knowing that we are creatures, we are created beings. And then with that knowledge, with that assurance, with that bedrock beginning, we are free to forget ourselves by delighting in God, by worshiping God, by enjoying God, and doing the things that he has called us to do. I'm an athlete, and an average athlete, but an athlete nonetheless. And maybe you've heard of this idea called the zone. So the zone is is what LeBron is in when he drops like five or six three-pointers in a row. Boom. Boom. That's the zone. The zone is what Roger is in when he, when he aces Rafael Nadal four times in a row to close out the final game of the match. That's the zone. For myself, the zone is not losing too many balls on, on a round of golf. <laughs> Somehow, when an athlete gets in that zone, he or she forgets himself, right? So think of forgetting ourselves... And enjoying God as being in the zone of the human game. Hitting the sweet spot of all of reality. And it's rare. And I think it's rare because we're afraid to forget ourselves. The analogy I thought of here is, is a guy that has a brand new car. And he's Paranoid. So he uses, you know, what is it called, the stick, you know, that thing. And then he's got an alarm, tweak, tweak, tweaks the alarm. He's, you know, maybe locks down the hubcaps, I don't know. But in every way, you know, sets up a a laser-triggered explosion around the perimeter of the thing. I mean, (laughs) the guy is paranoid. And why? He's afraid if he leaves the car unprotected, it will be gone when he comes back. I think that's why we're afraid to forget ourselves. We're afraid that if we leave ourselves, if we ignore ourselves, if we stop thinking about ourselves for a minute, we might lose ourselves. And so being in the zone, what it does is it gives us the confidence that 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 thing is going to be okay, that, that I can stop thinking about myself all the time, I can be grounded in my identity before God as my creator, and he is going to take care of who I am and I can focus on what he has called me to do. So I'm speaking about worship this morning, and and my opening remarks relate to our identity as human beings. And that's the angle I'm going to take as we consider what God is calling us to do and what he means by worship. I'm going to look at worship from the perspective of human identity. And so if you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to remember this. Worship, first of all, is about who we are, not what we do. Worship is about who you are and not what you do. I love the Psalms. The Psalms are, first of all, they're poems, which means that you can get away with things in a poem. You know, poetic license, have you heard that before? You can get away with things in a poem that you can't get away with in prose, like, say, one of Paul's epistles. Paul has to say it like it is. But with a poem, like like with a work of art and poems or something like verbal art, you can suggest things and leave it open-ended. You can you can hint at things without having to say it directly, and as a result, you tend to come into the mind from an angle that's not direct. It's not storming the castle gates, it's infiltrating, right? It's, uh, it's embedding yourself maybe as a spy coming back through the kitchen. So the Psalms, that may be the first time you've heard the Psalms compared to sneaking in the back door, but that's what they are. I think of the Psalms as primarily emotional texts, not intellectual texts, which isn't to make a truth claim about them. They, like the rest of scripture, are inerrant, infallible, the very word of God. But the way they are the word of God, we can even talk in literary terms as the genre that they exist in, requires us to approach them differently, requires them to be handled differently, requires them to be interpreted differently, requires them to be appropriated and lived and applied differently. And so I think it's useful, having come off of, if you will, 11 weeks of Pauline prose, that we take a moment to recognize Gardner's multiple intelligences, not all of us learn the same way. Some of us like poetry more than prose. Some of us are more engineers. We want it exactly laid out, right? That would be Paul. Others of us are more poetic, and that would be David. That would be some of the, some of the other prophecies, perhaps even Proverbs to a certain degree. But I also think it's important because as we think about our identity as human beings, that question tends to, to be an elusive question. It doesn't allow itself to be reduced to a certain few set of propositions. It's an expansive, it's a fuzzy question. And so the Psalms, I think, are well-suited to help us think about identity issues. I wanted to also make an introductory comment about the Old Testament. It's important for us to remember, and and if you're not aware of this, maybe this is a good lesson, and if you are, a good reminder that, that the Bible, Christians believe, is divided into two great halves or parts. Do you know what they are? The Old Testament and the New Testament. That's right. This is, this is uh, Vacation Bible School, so we're doing good. And in these two parts, we have how many stories? This is a trick question. One story. Aha. Okay, so one story in the Bible... And that story is all about the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah, and the return of the Messiah. And we have a part in that story as well, our, our orientation to, to the Messiah, who is revealed both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as Almighty God. So what is our orientation towards the Messiah as he is, is about to come? as he comes, and, and as we await his ultimate coming. So the Psalms, then, as positioned in the Old Testament, are, as I said, they're a unique genre of biblical literature in that they're poetry, but they also have a unique message. And the book of Psalms, as a whole, can be understood in this way, as helping people to live by faith as they await the advent of Messiah. And you can see this pattern not only in the book as a whole, but there are actually five miniature books within the book of Psalms. And then even as you interrelate between, say, Psalm 23 and Psalm 24 and Psalm 25, there's a, there's a conversation going on in the order of the actual Psalms themselves. And the, the conversation is all related to this. How do I live by faith? when the Messiah isn't here? How do I live by faith as I'm awaiting God's promise? So my sermon is called True Worship, and it's a good title, I think, for this text. I noticed as I was preparing this message that worship is mentioned indirectly or directly in almost every verse of this psalm. Take a look at it. Verse 1, earnestly I seek you. Verse 2, I have looked on you, In the sanctuary. Verse 3. My lips will praise you. Verse 4. I will bless you. Verse 5. My mouth will praise you. Verse 6. I meditate on you. I remember you. Verse 7. I will sing for joy. Verse 8. My soul clings to you. And then verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. So while every verse, almost every verse, speaks directly or indirectly of worship, it wasn't exactly the kind of worship that I was used to. And as I read this, and as I realized this, God challenged me. Maybe my definition of worship isn't the same as God's. I know. I'm a professional Christian. I should know these things. But I don't. And maybe if I don't, maybe you don't either. What do you think? So I think we've got some learning to do here, or maybe some reminding to do, about what true worship is. Let me put it this way. Take your definition of worship, and let's take the lock off of it for a minute. Let's open the lid, let's lift it out, put it on the table. And let's ask some questions about it. Let's be open to God helping us redefine what worship is, and then seeing what that has to say about who we are. And that's the order I'm going to take it. I said the two great questions of the universe are who we are, let's call that the indicative, and then what we are to do, let's call that the imperative. I'm going to take this sermon in the opposite order because the psalm talks specifically about what is done in worship. So we're going to start talking about what we are to do, and I'm going to end in my second point by showing you how that is based on who we are as people. So then my two two points are going to be redefining what we do in worship and then redefining who we are in worship. First point. Here are six aspects that this psalm talks about of what we do in worship. But I want to remember some context. Remember in the Old Testament, worship had a very specific context. David alludes to it when he mentions the word sanctuary. So there was a a physical location, a central physical location, a physical building with rituals that were carefully prescribed, including blood sacrifice. And so as David describes the scene of worship That's sort of what's going through his mind. If we could take a a tape or a movie out of what he's imagining, we would see some of these images. Bloody sacrifice, we'd see a priest, we'd see ornamentation and ceremony and holy days and, and yearly festivals and all these kinds of things. Nevertheless, there are some underlying principles that haven't changed. Those things have changed in the New Covenant. But there are some underlying truths that haven't changed. The problem, I think, is that David understood the underlying principles. We have forgotten some of them. That's what these six redefinitions are that I'm going to suggest to you. Things I think David knew that should be true for us, but we've forgotten. Here's the first one. The first element of redefining our definition of worship. Worship should be a saturated, not a segregated activity. So, saturated, not segregated. Look at verse 2. I have looked on you in the sanctuary. I'm not sure if David is separated from sanctuary worship at this time and saying in the past tense, in a sense, what he hopes to do in the future. Does that make sense? Or if being separated from sanctuary worship He's remembering what he's done in the past. It's really a very small argument either way. The point is that he had in mind the segregated activity of worship, that temple worship going there. But is that all he had in mind? Didn't he also have a saturated view in mind? Look at this, verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live. So that means not only when he's at the sanctuary, to me it means... At every other time, he's blessing, praising, worshiping God. Look at verse 6. He says, When I remember you upon my bed, through the watches of the night. So God is being worshiped by David, not just in a segregated sense, but he's being worshiped in a saturated sense. Saturation. Think of a, of a, a sponge. If you're washing a car, the first time you dip the sponge in the water, it comes up and the water's running off of it, off the outside. And you dip it in again, and you dip it in again, and you dip it in again until that sponge is heavy with water and you squeeze it. And the water just comes running down out of the sponge and down your arm. Saturated is what that sponge is. It's saturated. See, I think we've forgotten this. I think that for some of us... (coughs) we only have a view of worship that's segregated. We dip it in the water once and we think that's enough. God wants us to wants to immerse us in worship. Again and again and again. Here's a second element that I think needs to be redefined for us. Body, not brain. Body, not just brain. This element of a redefined concept of worship is one that says that worship is a whole activity. It's not just something that takes place up here between the ears for David. Look at what I mean in verse 1 and 2. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. So we see this idea of body, not just brain, in that as he describes what's going on inside of him, he describes it in a very physical, tactile way. My soul thirsts for you. We don't have a problem of kind of conceiving of intense thirst here in the desert. I mean, the mouth is sticky. The tongue sort of sticks to your teeth. You can't even swallow. You're so thirsty. My soul thirsts for you. David describes the mental and spiritual satisfaction of worship in physical ways. My soul will be satisfied, he says in verse five, as with fat and rich food now we have a we have a prejudice against fat in America, so I need to rescue fat for a moment I, I lived and worked in a farming community about ten years ago, and I was told that On that nice piece of meat, forgive me if you're a vegetarian, on that nice piece of meat that's laying in front of you, the white stuff around the edges and that runs through the middle is not fat. It's marbling. (laughs) My soul will be satisfied as with marbling. That's the stuff that makes the meat tender and juicy. David not only lifted up God's name with his voice but he lifted up God's name with his hands. This is a very unpresbyterian concept of worship. It's not just brain. In fact, we could probably put our brains aside if let the reader understand, okay? We could put our brains aside for a month as Presbyterians, and not even begin to address the needs we have to use our bodies in worship. And he lifted up God's name with his voice. He used a voice. That's part of the body. The vocal cords were moving. I suspect David was singing with loud voice. A loud voice he used. And he wasn't so concerned about being on key. Now, I need to make this qualification. I believe David was a brilliant musician. He's clearly a gifted poet. But remember, David is the one that King Saul called on to soothe him in his anger. This is a gifted musician. And so most of us can't relate to that. Some of us can But even if you're not a gifted musician, does that mean that when David lifts up the praise of God with a voice, with all the voice that he has, that we're exempt because we're not singing on key? All the reason for us to sing louder so that the guy next to us who doesn't sing on key has a little bit of space. (laughs) David didn't merely look on God in his heart, did he? But he looked on God in the sanctuary. He actually went somewhere. And this cuts across the American idea that I can worship God on the mountain or on the trail or, or on the beach or in the garage or, or whatever and know that there's is, there is an actual journey that David took with his feet. And he went from point A to point B where at point B he worshiped God. So body, not just brain. Here's another redefined element. Singing, not just supposing. This relates to what I've just been talking about. He didn't confine his worship to thinking about God, to supposing things about God. David's worship, he actually sang to God. He uses the human voice of song to worship God in this psalm. A redefined element number four I've called desperate, not demure. I was really reaching on that one. Desperate, not demure. I even had to look up demure to make sure that it was going to work for me. (laughs) You know what it means? Shy. It can have other meanings, but I'm going to use the word shy. So in worship, David was not shy. He was not embarrassed. He was not, certainly not embarrassed He was not hesitant. He didn't come partially. He came fully. He came, if you will, desperately. Western Christians are often demure in their worship. It's not what characterizes David's worship in this psalm. Look at the desperate quality David brings. Verse 1, earnestly he seeks God. Earnest. What was the last time you were earnest about something? How about losing your keys, your cell phone, being late to an appointment that's going to cost you a hundred bucks, earnest, a job interview, earnest, an SAT, a GRE, a PhD exam, earnest, when was the last time you were earnest in worship? My soul thirsts for you, verse 1. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land, verse 2. I will bless your name as long as I live, verse 4. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, verse 5. My soul clings to you. When was the last time you clung to someone? Here's a fifth element that needs to be redefined. Grief not just gladness there's a school of thought amongst evangelicals that says that there's no sadness in the christian life tears are a sign of a lack of faith just trust god brother it'll be fine keep a joyful heart and all will be well jesus is smiling on you you can smile on jesus too but there is a significant element of grief in the bible amongst all people of faith. And you see it in this text as well. In verses 1 and 2, David thirsts and yearns as one who is experiencing dehydration. He's in pain. As I said in the beginning, he's separated from the worship of God. He's angry, I believe, that he's not with God and with God's people, that he's perhaps in exile somewhere. David is is upset. David regrets what happened to bring him to this point. If you'll allow me this somewhat sanctified imagination, David is, is, is wondering when he's going to get back to doing what he did before, and until then, he's grieving. In verses 6 and 7, we see that David is having trouble sleeping. Anybody can relate to that? It says, When I remember you upon my bed. This isn't just telling us, I believe, what David is doing remembering God on his bed. I think it's telling us what David is trying to do. He's trying to remember God on his bed, but he's having difficulty through the watches of the night, which means that he's waking up. You know the the feeling if you have a cold or you have a fever and you see the clock and it's 1 a.m. And then you go to sleep and you wake up again and it's 2 a.m. And you go to sleep and you wake up again and it's 3 a.m. This is the night that never ends. David is so stressed, he's under such such weight that he's waking up on every hour, every couple of hours, and he's wondering, will this night ever end? In verses 8 to 11, then, we discover the reason that David needs to cling to God in such a desperate way, because there are those in verse 9 who are seeking to destroy his life. There are those that are trying to give him over to the power of the sword, and so he prays that same fate on them. There are those in verse 11 that are lying about David, that are lying about his name, his reputation, his past, his plans, everything that he's doing. And so this is a man who, in the midst of what is, I believe, a beautiful poem, is free to express and experience deep grief a sixth element, I think, that needs to be redefined for us as we think about worship. I've called it judgment, not just joy. And this ties into what I've just said. There's a school of thought in preaching in some evangelical churches that we must only preach God's yes and that we either minimize or ignore God's no. And we believe that it is both God's yes and God's no It makes for a balanced diet. So we don't feel the need to come to the text of Psalm 63, a text that I have said is the word of God, and stop the scripture reading at verse 8. We can continue reading in verses 9 and 10 and 11, these awkward verses, which sound something like a curse. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth The mouths of liars will be stopped. They will be given over to the power of the sword. David had real enemies. There are people who are opposed to the knowledge of God. Enemies didn't disappear with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are those today who would shut down the church, who would silence the mouths of faithful preachers. And some of them are even here. Some of them are here in my own head. There are enemies of the gospel in our midst, and we must recognize that and say that as we worship God, we worship as people, as in Nehemiah's day, that have a sword buckled around our waist as we're rebuilding the wall. We eat at a table in the midst of our enemies, as David says in Psalm 23. This deserves its own sermon, the the imprecatory portions of the psalms those prayers that ask God to bring anger or wrath on God's enemies and David's enemies. And I can't do that now, but it is helpful to notice at least this much that David is not merely praying as a private person. He's not trying to sort of clean his inbox of all his vendettas. David is praying as those that one who is the anointed of Israel, the one who had been set apart by God as God's agent, God's visible representative, if you will, of the future coming king. So at least we can say that much and affirm these parts of David's prayers. Too much of worship today lacks the quality we find in Luther's hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. And though the world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. So that's, I think, some ways that we need to define what we do in worship. What does that have to say about who we are? I'm going to go back through those six things and show you how it's not only something that we do in worship, but it speaks to who we are, that that these activities that I've set forth before you, the the saturation, not segregation, which was my first element, the body, not just the brain, which was my second element, singing, not just supposing, which was my third element, desperate, not demure, grief, not just gladness, and judgment, not just joy. In each one of these aspects, I think we see an identity issue for Christians. Saturated, not segregated. Who are we? Are we compartmentalized people? Has Jesus died for our brains, for our inner selves, for our intellect only? Has he died for the work and the worship that we do on one day of the week? For a certain circumscribed set of behaviors that take place for a couple of hours on Sunday? Is that what Jesus died for? Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ go to the cross and then rise again from the dead on the third day for every moment of every day of our lives, past, present, and future? Didn't he die to make us saturated people, people that would worship him as we sleep and as we wake, as we go to work, and as we come home, as we lay down, and as we get up, as we speak to our husbands or wives or friends, and as we speak on a platform to a thousand people, isn't that what Jesus died for? Isn't the good news of the gospel that he has made us whole people, not just brains, but bodies, people with passions and people with grief, not just gladness? And isn't the salvation that we love Isn't it a salvation for desperate people? People that are desperately lost. People whose GPS has run out of juice and have no idea where they are. And that they're practically asking every person that comes by, would you please help me? And each person says, no, no, no. And we have no hope except the Lord Jesus Christ. And that desperate need that we bring to the cross is an analog to the desperate Joy and the desperate engagement, the emotional engagement that we have in knowing that we have such a great salvation. Paul put it this way in Romans 5. He says, where sin abounded, where sin rose up past the, uh, you know, the, the banks of the Mississippi, past the sandbags in Iowa, and flooded the whole town, where sin abounded, grace came in and abounded all the more. If if you uh, can handle the analogy of a poker game where sin raised the ante, grace came in and raised it even more. God has saved us from a desperate strait and has made us desperate seekers of him. I love this principle of judgment, not just joy. Think about this. If it were only about joy, then why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died on the cross because he received in his person the judgment due to us. And he has made us sons and daughters of the king. That is an identity issue. Our identities have been changed, my friends. We are no longer enemies of the cross. We once were on the wrong side and God and his arrows were pointing at us and all the swords were were pointing at us and through Christ he comes in and he He lowers the weapons and he makes us not just friends but literally a son in, in all of the significance of the ancient Near East that that word has. In the beginning, I mentioned what my main point was. I said that who we are in worship is the most important question when we talk about this idea of true worship. And what we do in worship is a second place question. I'd like to conclude with a brief illustration from scripture, John chapter 4, and the woman at the well. if you've read this story before, it may be familiar to you. If you haven't, let me just kind of summarize it. It goes like this. Jesus is thirsty, so it's a good illustration in that sense because our text speaks of that. And he's he's in, uh, in a certain region, and a woman comes to draw water. Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Can you please give me a drink? And they start having a conversation about thirst. And Jesus says, you know, if... If you knew who you were talking to, you could have asked him and he would have given you water. Having drank it, you would never thirst again. And and she goes, "I want I want in on some of that action. Who is that guy?" And so they start talking about water and eternal life and salvation and redemption, which are not Western categories, my friends. These are Eastern. These are holistic categories. It's the body and soul principle I've been describing so far. And that at an awkward moment in the conversation, Jesus somewhat interrupts her and says, by the way, where is your husband? This is a lady that's been divorced, I think, five times and is living with a guy, her sixth mate, but not married to him. And she goes, you know, sort of awkward. And so then Jesus says, You know what? Essentially he's saying, You know what? You have a lot of needs. You have a lot of thirst. And so the woman does what every good religious person would do. She changes the subject. She says... What about that worship battle that's going on at GA this year? What, t- try to resolve that for me, because I know that the Baptists say that this is how we worship, but the Presbyterians over here say that this is how we worship. What do you say? And Jesus, I imagine him thinking, uh, weren't we just talking about your personal life? How do we get on to this, you know, the headline issue? And, but Jesus replies to her, and he says, woman, which is a term of affection, he said, woman... A time will come, when worship won't be about those debates. Worship will be about the true worshipers that God is preparing for himself. Because God is seeking worshipers, the identity, people who have been made into worshipers. And I thought about that, and I thought about this story, and I want to end with that because I think that's what he's doing in this church as well. God is seeking worshipers. You know, if we, if we are worshipers, are the indicative, then what we do in worship, I think God's pretty okay. But if, if we figure out what to do in worship, if that were possible and we aren't worshipers, God's not okay with that. And what's what's ironic about Christians, and I include myself in this, is we get into this great program of salvation and quickly move to these secondary matters of how or how we aren't supposed to worship. And in the process, we stop being the kind of people that God has saved us to be in the first place. Identity shapes our activity. Who comes before what? To the woman, Jesus is basically saying, it's not about your worship practices or your human doings. It's about your being. It's about your being known by God and believing in him that he loves you. Satisfaction is a word that's mentioned several times in our text this morning satisfaction. I myself, by way of my concluding application, am guilty of being satisfied with less than God desires. I have been satisfied for too long with trying to figure out the what of worship and being satisfied not knowing who I am as a worshiper. I'm not willing to do that anymore. I would invite you to join me in recognizing your identity as being the central issue of worship and letting the what we do in worship, letting that go. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for, for inspiring, challenging, and equipping us to be the people on your mission. You say in John 4 that you're seeking worshipers, Shouldn't that be what we are about? first seeking ourselves in, in a way seeking out who you have called us to be and then seeking others that you are at work in their lives at various places on that spectrum of spiritual formation lord looking over hill and dale for those that that you have set your set obvious evidences of your love and put them in our lives lord how often we get distracted from the main thing by lesser things help us to be dissatisfied with our distractions and to be satisfied in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.